Well, trying to uh, convey this this uh, perspective of uh, boundlessness, infinity, consciousness, uh, just by the simple ability to pay attention. <clears throat> No, it's like listening, listening, and uh, but without listening for anything in particular. Then the, then the, this this is this, because it is boundless and it contains everything. Everything belongs, and then we can from there we have perspective on the particular details of this present moment, such as the, the body and the breath and the state of mind, the mode of the jitta. So this, this uh, unconditioned then is the, what I'm doing is I'm starting from, from this point from the unconditioned, then the conditions are in perspective. So I'm pointing to that because uh, the more you think about it, the more confused you'll probably get. Because it's not a it, it it's not point of thinking or figuring it out, but in realize, realizational recognition of it. So in the when I talk about sound of silence, and this is, this is, I found the most useful, uh, skillful means of tuning in on that level of that boundless, unconditioned, where the conditions then uh, be, can, can be seen in that perspective, the rising, ceasing. So this, this relationship of the conditioned to the unconditioned. Now putting that in the context of the Four Noble Truths, because the, the Four Noble Truths is the essential teaching, then this uh, taking suffering, the, the ordinary experience of, of uh, dukkha or suffering, Pointing, recognizing that or understanding it, uh, investigating the causes of suffering leads to the insight of letting go of the causes. 
So that's dealing with the conditioned realm. When you the first two noble truths, the third noble truth then is the is the reality of the unconditioned, or it's called the cessation, niroda, of the conditions. So in in being aware of uh, where the world ceases, the conditions cease. Uh, is a, is the way of recognizing the unconditioned or the uh, path, the eightfold path. So then, the third noble truth, fourth noble truth, or is the insight, the recognition, and the re- realization of cessation when everything ceases or when cessation takes place, you're aware of the ceasing of a thought, of a mood, of an emotion. So that's why it's not a matter of trying to get rid of them or, you know, trying to, you know, uh, suppress, deny or resist uh, conditions or emotional experience, but... uh, letting go of it, allowing it to be what it is, so that its natural cessation is recognized. And in that, in that recognition, uh, that realization of cessation uh, is, the, is the same as the unconditioned. And then the development of the Eightfold Path, right understanding, Samaditi, Samasangapo, this this uh, right understanding, right intention. So there's this wisdom. The wisdom faculty is now operative, which leads to right uh, uh, speech, right action, right livelihood. In terms of the practical issues of survival, living in the society within the human form is to, it takes us to a natural inclination towards non-violence, respect for nature, uh, uh, doing what is appropriate and, and skillful, compassionate action in the world. Um, and then this also includes right uh, effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So this, what they call Eightfold Path, is really awareness, the bhavana. So the third noble truth, the, the insight is realization of cessation, and then the uh, insight into the Eightfold Path is developing this, cultivating or bhavana. So this is, this is what meditation is all about, cultivating developing. And this this also, in the terms that I'm referring to, is developing that confidence, that trust in awareness. Because even the, you know, too much, too much thinking about the Four Noble Truths uh, is not the answer. It's putting them into practice using them as tools for awareness of investigation. Now there's the Buddha encouraged, investigating, looking into, getting to the root of things. <clears throat> so in, in there's words like this in Pali that that are, you know, encouragements to to not just grasp Buddha's ideas and and um, or just expect, you know, wait for some kind of um, magic to happen that, you know, a bolt from the blue that enlightens you, but to to uh, investigate, look into the word vipassana, looking into the nature of things, insights. It's not just, it's not intellectual knowledge, it's, it's uh, jnana dasana, insight knowing much more deep and profound 
is what they might call gut knowledge, realization. So one of the questions is about meta practice. Meta uh, is uh, translated usually as loving kindness in English. Unconditioned, put it into another, a more profound translation is unconditioned love. So, unconditioned love. So, and what do we mean by love? Because this word is used for so many things in English. So, you know, this is where we need to clarify how we're going to use these terms. Because uh, so many words in English, uh, we think we understand because it's our native tongue. So, we, we, you know, I used to think I really uh, understood English because it was my native language and then what I was first learned to use. And then I began to think, I, a lot of my thinking habits and use of English language is habitual. It's not even considered. You know, you just pick up a language and you use it and you think you understand the words, but so sometimes, I, you know, the words I... I would use, I didn't really understand them in any profound way. I just assumed that I did. So then it's, it's up to us, you know, to, when words are not absolutes, fixed entities with, you know, we, we have a choice of how we're going to use words and what we mean by the words we are using. We have to make it clear within ourselves if we're going to, you know, try to communicate our experience to others. So when I use this term, unconditioned love, or metta, it, uh, it, it isn't, doesn't have anything to do with liking anything. It's not like falling in love with somebody, or liking something. So sometimes we, we say we love something, which we really mean we like it. But it loves Amy, you know, gives a little more emphasis. We like it a lot. <laughs> now, the, the term love also, I say, in the Christian sense of unconditioned love, is more the, what I, how I would define metta. Loving kindness is all right too, but but this unconditioned love is is uh, acceptance without any conditions. Ah, it's not saying I'll accept you and I'll love you if you behave yourself, <laughs> or if you do what I say, uh, or if you keep the rules properly and you do not offend me in any way. Then I love you. <laughs> that's, that's conditioned love, isn't it? That means, you know, that if you don't do what I say, then I don't love you anymore. <clears throat> so that's what we call, I think, modern, we call that emotional blackmail. <laughs> and then the unconditioned love has nothing to do with, with uh, liking or a, a pre, uh, or uh, approving of anything. It's our, when, when you really trace and, and, and really aware of metta at its very source, uh, it's unconditioned. Because uh, metta practices are really using uh, this, this attitude uh, toward accepting uh, everything as it is. Uh, including the devils, the the angels, the the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, everything, the nasty bits, the corruption, the 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 sublime, 
it's not the boring and so forth. It's, it's un- unconditioned. So it's a relating to conditioned phenomena in all its aspects and uh, permutations and variations uh, without criticizing. It's, it's a non-critical ability. So it's, it's accepting and, and uh, allowing everything to be what it is, unconditionally. Now it's uh, I found in the when when the the emptiness of the mind, the non-attached emptiness of awareness, developing and cultivating this, then then one is really in that state of unconditioned love, because it's a, a natural state of being. That, that is that isn't personal. It's not a mine in the sense of I I am I have developed loving kindness or metta practice. I'm just filled with it as a person. It's it's beyond my personality. Personality also is a part of that. Not to not to uh, to criticize or oneself or one's personal habits. But receiving even the, the 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 unpleasant, the dark, the bad side of one's uh, psychic makeup, with loving kindness. So applying that to to oneself, we start with, "May I abide in well-being." So this is starting with with this being here, and then from there, uh, it radiates outward to all sentient beings. And it really, and so it includes all sentient beings, the devils, the Lord of Death, everything. President Bush. <laughs> Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> And Tony Blair. <laughs> now, this does not mean approving or liking or agreeing, does it? Because that we can't do. You know, some things are likable and some things are not. The nature, you know, condition phenomena is infinitely variable. It's refined and coarse, and you know it's so it, it changes and it varies, and and what we like is is dependent on conditions, and what we don't like. So these are changing. You know, you can't you can't really like something that's unlikable. Just like like say um, somebody's being really nasty to you and uh, very insulting uh, and you can't like them at that moment you can't like that but you can still love them isn't it it's, it's metta unconditioned love so in in one experiment i made uh, years ago I was very felt a lot of anger toward a particular monk and uh, kind of rage and indignation and anger and so whenever this this monk's name came into my consciousness I'd feel this rage and my personality is one that uh, gets outraged I can even get violent uh, so, you know, if I if I follow it, so um, this has been a challenge for me because when, when just the name of this particular person came into consciousness, and, oh, my fist would clench. <laughs> 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 so 
So in metta practice, uh, you know, you think, that metta for this monk. I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to have metta for George Bush. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why was this? Because this monk is a good monk, too. It's not that he's an evil force in the universe. So I started, I started um, making this conscious, my anger and my rage conscious. So I started writing it out in one of these notebooks with lines and just writing out in each line my anger, resentment, rage. And I kept, I filled up about three pages of uh, vitriolic, um, scurrilous language. I wasn't, I wasn't editing or trying to be politically correct in any way <laughs> and just let it flow out. But the intention was not, you know, to harm, but to make conscious this rage. So it's like having this meta-acceptance of this emotion. You see what I mean? It was, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, just from the ideal level of having meta for somebody that only brought up rage. So, so it doesn't, you can't, you know, there's no way I could convince myself on that level of just sentimentality and idealism. I had to work, work it, I had to have the meta for the rage, for the anger. So I wrote it out uh, quite intentionally and deliberately until I came to a point where the, nothing manifested. I bring this then this person's name into consciousness and there would be no rage. There's nothing. And I try, I think, one more nasty thing to say about this person. <laughs> I couldn't. It's completely gone. Because in writing it out somehow it, it did make it very conscious and at that time and then I accepted this. Rather, I wasn't trying to be the perfect monk filled with loving kindness towards all sentient beings. I was, you know, on the, you know, where, say, when we, you know, when it's coming from the self view, when metta is merely sentimentality, uh, isn't it nice to love everybody and be kind? It can be very superficial and, and, and not go very deep. So getting to, to the root of it, having metta for uh, the, this anger, this rage, this nastiness in me, by accepting it, by writing it out, and not criticizing or feeling guilty or anything, but just writing it out in order to, to let it go. So this made the rage and the anger very conscious and then it reached a point where there's nothing more. And in that emptiness, and that where there was no more rage, nothing left, and the image of this monk came into consciousness, then there was love, metta, for this monk. So I thought, this is wonderful, you know, underlying all that, all that bitterness and anger is love, you know, it's just, it's not, it was, you know, if I just looked at it superficially, I think it's impossible to have metta for this monk. Because on that level of, of thought and ideas, sentiments, uh, you know, if I hadn't accepted, I hadn't dealt with, I hadn't allowed this rage to be fully accepted in consciousness. And so then, then they, having met up for this anger, seemed to resolve the anger. It completely vanished. And then what's left when there's no more anger is metta. That's what I call, that's real unconditioned love. <clears throat> so 
just notice on the intellectual level, it's all ideals. We, we have this sense of how things should be. You know, we should be kind to everybody and have compassion and, and uh, you know, the, a good monk should, should be unselfish, shouldn't get angry, should forgive, uh, shouldn't hold grudges, shouldn't be jealous. Uh, a proper monk, a really good Buddhist monk, should be like this. And when they're not, then they're not good Buddhist monks, bad monks. (laughs) (laughs) So then we get, you know, then, then how do we really feel? Now, now we're all quite, uh, developed on the ideal level, the United States is a very idealistic country. You know, so we're brought up to be, to hold high-minded ideals. So this is not a problem. We all know how everything should be, don't we? (laughs) We all know how spirit rock should be. And, and how Amravati should be, and that Theravada Buddhism should be. So that's not a problem. But, the, but then on the emotional level, the way it is, uh, you know, we, we, what, what, what's happening there? What, how do we really feel? Because as I've been saying, the ideals are, are not sensitive. They're perfect, they're beautiful, uh, but they're, in themselves, they, they don't feel anything. You know, they're unfeeling. When we attach to ideals, we become insensitive. We become critical of others, of ourselves, of the society, of, of the things that we love even. We become critical because we're always measuring the, the way things are with the ideal of how it should be. So in metta practice, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not coming from ideals anymore, but from the way things are. For example, the anger and rage towards this monk. That's not my ideal for being a monk. You know, my ideal is not to be angry not to feel this rage towards anybody. That's the ideal. But the emotional reality of that moment was, this is what's happening. This is how, this is the feeling. So the name of this particular monk, this name comes into consciousness and this rage starts operating. Then from my ideal position, I can say, I shouldn't feel this. I should forgive and understand and be kind and the poor fellow, you know, he, he does have his problems and, and uh, I should be more understanding and I can go on like that too because I know how I should feel. But how I really feel is like this. And so that's what I was writing out on, this, on, on these sheets of paper. Not, not the ideal, but uh, trying to make fully conscious the actual, putting into words this anger and rage. Until, and it, it was quite a wonderful insight, until it was completely finished. Because at that point, I couldn't actually conceive of anything more to write. It was, it was a real insight. There was nothing more because it was completely resolved at that moment. And what was left was sound of silence, emptiness. And then, then I thought to myself, what does this silence say to this monk? What is this silence? If it, if it could speak, what would it say? And it says, I love you. Simple as that. It's the only thing it knows how to say. Unconditionally. 
So, so this is an experiment just to, from my own uh, exp, uh, attempts at understanding and, and developing metta practice. So in, in this term of unconditioned love, loving kindness, love in general, you know, this is, this is quite a powerful word in the English language, even though it's used for all kinds of silly things as well. And it's not to be despised or ignored, it's to be, how, how do you want to, what do you really mean when you use that word? What does it really mean? Or can you decide how you want to use it? I feel I can, I can decide how I'm going to use words. And uh, this is how, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> so metta then is, is our ability to uh, it's a, to receive life in all its infinite varieties and extremities with this unconditioned acceptance, uncriticalness. It's discerning. It's not. It's not uh, a kind of fuzzy feeling of of uh, you know kind of uh, feeling of of just not noticing the the badness or the nastiness of anything. But it's not making it into a problem. It's not dwelling on what's wrong or on what's evil or bad. It's not getting stuck into that and then then operating from from uh, how horrible some something is. So metta then is a is a is what what is at the basis of consciousness, when we're fully aware and conscious, the, our nature is that. In human beings, we are, we are capable of unconditioned love, and then karuna, compassion for the suffering of all sentient beings, and mudita, the joy of the beauty of the world that we're living in, and the uh, equanimity, upeka. Now these are the, the Brahma Viharas, the, the four sublime states, that they come from the empty mind. They're not personal, uh, personal qualities that I can claim as some kind of personal uh, ability I have. If I do that, don't believe it. I'm just filled with metta, karuna, mudita, upeka as a person. But if I let go of the person, the sakya ditti, then then these these are natural responses. These are spontaneous responses to particular situations. So they're called the pure abodes because they come from the purity of our consciousness, from consciousness itself. It's, they're not tainted with uh, me and mine and, and uh, conditionality of any sort. They're, they're spontaneous uh, from that uh, unconditioned reality. So that's why in Meditation, we're, we're, we're stepping out of the way, like Ajahn Sumedho steps out of the way and allows the, the free flow rather than always getting in the way, trying to interfere with the flow of consciousness. Like a personal, you know, if I attach myself, you know, if I operate from my personality and my cultural conditioning and my prejudices and habits and emotional habits and so forth, then I'm always interfering with life. And then me projecting and, and causing, distorting reality uh, in, in whatever I'm doing, whoever I'm with. <clears throat> so that's why it is difficult in relationships and in societies and families and so forth too to get along with each other because most people are coming from personal agendas and so they're in conflict with each other. 
And so we have to use, you know, dominate somebody or threaten them or bully them or, you know, blackmail them or, or you know, just disfun- what they call dysfunctional habits of just trying to kind of ignore certain problems and, and survive, just survival in the society, in the family. In a relationship, we can just live on that level of just trying to survive in some way. Because uh, that's probably the best we can do on the personal level. But when we transcend the personal, then, then the personal isn't, isn't, is no longer the main issue. You know, we, we can, we have our our unity lies in in our awareness rather than just uh, having to agree uh, all the time on the condition level so this is you know this is a development of the human consciousness this is the potential we all have as human beings uh, for realization for enlightenment uh, we, you know, this is why the human birth is highly regarded. In Thailand, for example, they often say, oh, being born as a human being is a great, is the best birth. So it's highly valued. And when I first heard this, I thought, oh, it's a curse. <laughs> to me, my humanity was like being cursed with something. I thought it'd be nicer to be an animal. These you. <laughs> You know, you don't have all this complexity of guilt and remorse and and self aversion. At least I, I didn't. I, I would assume <laughs> that dogs and cats don't have that. <laughs> but in you know, in in being a complicated personality, it's uh, you know, life is difficult, and even though. I have nothing, no great complaints in my life. As I've been quite fortunate in the fact that I've, I've not been, you know, I don't feel I've been mistreated or abused or a victim of circumstances. I've had pretty good, pretty fortunate life, even on the worldly plane. But even with the, the best of worldly conditions, the suffering was still incredible. And why? Because of the ignorance. You know, the, the, just the, the terrible ignorance and the conditioned habits that, that I'd acquired uh, just led to endless, uh, endless uh, confusion. Developing a critical mind that wouldn't stop, criticizing everything and myself included. So the inner critic, you know, is a very tyrant, an inner tyrant. Always, even even at when even when I was, you know, doing well, even when I would win prizes or receive accolades, the inner tyrant would say, "You don't really deserve it. You really, you know, somebody. It would never let me feel good about anything." Why is that? Why, why, was this, why was the mind conditioned like that? What is it that some kind of, of a very uh, relentless, tyrannical force? And go, psychology, they call it the superego. And of course, it goes outward and, and it goes inward. And so by um, recognizing this, this how... You know, the modern education is all about developing your critical faculties and, uh, and comparing yourself with ideals. Or it's competitive, you're always competing with others. You know, you, you're brought up to compete, to try to outrun or be better than somebody else. So this competitiveness, this idea of having ideals, you know, who can, who can be the winner, who can 
win the prize, who is the most beautiful of them all, and all the rest, is, uh, is, is part of the cultural package. And so then, the, the, uh, you know, then we're always looking towards the best, the top, the peak, and then the realities of our life can seem pretty dreary, you know, when we see ourselves compared to the very best, one can only feel a failure or inadequate. So, that's where the Vipassana practices was, was a, a kind of way of healing this, this problem in my own experience by reflecting on the way it is. Like, like I found in Thailand with Ajahn Chah, the thing I loved about living there with him was the acceptance of life as it is. You know, he, he wasn't trying to say, you know, his monastery was the best and, 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 and that we are trying to be the best monks and, and um, the purest and all this. Um, sometimes, you know, you'd go, I'd go and ask him about things I didn't think were all that proper and I could criticize, and he said, well, it's the way it is, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, you should, you should always try to make it better. You know, you should always make, try to, when you see anything going wrong, you should stop it and clean it up, make it better. And our duty is to to always go around pleasing the world and the monastery, you know, to, we're looking at any, any kind of, uh, you know, not, it's, what is this home security kind of <laughs> mindset? We see any monk or any sign of degeneration, we, we chop it off immediately. But Nung Po Cha wasn't like that. And so, and I, and I observed that, and I thought, that's rather, I rather like that. Because it's not, it's not a peaceful state of mind to always be caught in this, trying to hold everything together and, and keep everything according to how I think it should be. That is exhausting. And you'll never succeed. You'll have a nervous breakdown. Because life changes, and this is where meditation is bringing attention to changingness rather than to uh, uh, glorifying the peak moments of the, of the conditioned realm and, and uh, saying that's how it should be. Life should be a peak, a continuous peak moment. Life should always be at its best. That's the, the utopian idealism, isn't it? build the society into a perfect utopian society where everything is as it should be. That you can only do through idealizing it. But the realities of this planet, planetary life, sensory activity, is not ideal. It's not an ideal. It's, it's the feeling, it's the nerves, it's the blood flowing, it's the, it's the uh, pain the pleasure, the way things move and change. This is, this is what we're experiencing, and this is planetary life. This is a sense realm, is like this. So in reflecting on Dhamma, and Dhamma is not talking about the, the best, but about the way it is. Nibbana is not the best. You know, like in terms of it's the it's some kind of uh, ultimate thing. It's say it put it in the terms of ordinary, because nibbana is usually in modern English used for the best, isn't it? When you talk about nibbana, you say they name you know implying that something is really the best. They can say it's it's a real nibbana, you know. The Nibbana restaurant as the <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't call it ordinary food restaurant.
Uh, probably perfume, you know, they'll probably name some kind of fragrance Nibbana. There'd probably be some extreme kind of scent. It wouldn't be just ordinary kind of uh, scentless perfume. <laughs> <laughs> you could use distilled water, the cheaper. <clears throat> so ordinariness then is is you know this is in awareness. Awareness isn't extreme. It's not like samadhi, not like jhanas, where you absorb into states that are extreme. So it, it's you know it's not that it's not refined. You're going to an ultimate refined peak of condition, of absorption into a refined condition. So what is it then, here and now, in the way you are, whatever? state of mind or physical condition you're experiencing in this moment. And of course this is where the, the challenge we have is to awaken to the way it is. So we have this reflection on all conditions are impermanent. So in this is very much the first two noble truths, uh, developing awareness around suffering and its causes. So in first two noble truths, the dukkha, the suffering, understanding it, having the insight, uh, you know, really recognizing, admitting, noticing, fully conscious of, of this unsatisfactoriness. And then the causes of it, the second noble truth, the three kinds of desire, attachment to those out of ignorance is the cause. So then the insight is to let go of the causes. So this is where sabbe sankarani cha is, a, is the, the guiding phrase. <clears throat> then sabbe tama anatta, all dhamma is not self. So this uh, change from sankara in the sape sankara to sape tama. So in sankara always means phenomena or conditions, that which arises and ceases. Dhamma is the deathless. So the dhamma, the amata dhamma, anatta. There's no self, there's no, the self is in, in this sense, in the Buddhist sense of using the word self, is always aligned to the sakyaditi, the identity that we have with the five khandhas, that it goes on question for most people. So in, in uh, investigating Dhamma, we're, we're, we've got these very skillful teachings of the Buddha to it's a kind of language we're learning, an agreed vocabulary. This is what I find valuable in uh, like Theravada Buddhism because uh, in English it's, uh, you know, we don't have the, we don't have it so clearly stated. And uh, where in uh, Theravada Buddhism and in Pali also, it's, it's like, a, it's a dead language, a classical language, so it's not it's not like a living language that changes over time. So it's kind of the, the actual vocabulary we're learning is not just to, to learn more uh, kind of exotic words, but to, to, you know, it's holding the meaning and then to look for the reality that these words are pointing at. And, and it gives us a, a vocabulary for talking about enlightenment, about Nibbana, about liberation, deathless, the way things are. But 
but it is a convention in itself so it's it's not to be clung to when it's for it's for uh, our use it's our opportunity how to use this tool this convention for wisdom and awareness awareness and wisdom sati and panya so during this retreat this is one hundred to to encourage the use of this convention um, for investigating reality here and now you know and the conditions that we find ourselves here at Spirit Rock, the way they are, you know, the way you are at this moment, the way it is here. Not not trying to to compare it with some other place. <clears throat> and if we do, you know, then we we see that, you know, the tendency to to, uh, to compare the this place with some other. It's not what we're here for. You know, to decide which is the best meditation center in the world. But this is the way it is here, and they, with with monasteries, you know, it's so easy to form opinions about, you know, how monasteries should be. But I always encourage where whatever monastery I'm in, I open to the way it is rather than than uh, spend my time uh, criticizing it, thinking if it's not if it's not like my monastery. thinking that there's something wrong with it. And if I do incline to that, I, I observe that. I'm not going to believe it and, 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 uh, and follow that kind of uh, activity because I, don't, I know it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't lead to liberation. It doesn't lead onward. <clears throat> so in uh, the... Uh, where whatever monastery I'm in, you know, I, this is the way it is. I observe, I discern, I notice. I'm aware that, you know, if there's things I don't like about it, but I'm not <coughs> indulging in, in liking or disliking. So then every place one can learn from, you know, from, you know, like traffic jams in Bangkok. In London, I suppose there's traffic jams in San Francisco. In Marin County, I'm sure there's traffic jams. <laughs> <laughs> an opportunity, like Bangkok, is famous for its traffic jams. So uh, Thais asked me about price. I say, you've got a really good situation here in Bangkok because you get stalled in traffic for, for sometimes hours. Good chance to observe. Dhamma. <laughs> Listen to the sound of silence. <clears throat> I don't know whether they do or not, but it's <laughs> but it, it's seeing things as as opportunities rather than just being frustrated by obstructions and difficulties in the world that we experience. And so it's like like learning to use the flow of your life. You know, any kind of illness disease you have or disabilities, these are not obstructions to enlightenment. These are, you know, unless you determine that they're going to be, <laughs> then, you're, then you're creating that into an obstruction. It's not it's an obstruction in itself. So sometimes we, we learn the, you know, I've, the really difficult patches of my monastic life uh, where I've had to develop patience and endurance and, and uh, that have oftentimes been the most strengthening. You know, when one learns to endure and learn from adversity, uh, it, the confidence and the strength that results from that. Now, in in my own life as a monk, you know, just a, been through all kinds of ups and downs and good patches and bad patches, just like anyone else, anyone else's life. 
but uh, the confidence that I have now in the path is a result of that. You know, it's a, putting it to a test when when everything's falling apart, when everything's going wrong in my life, and uh, all my good efforts seem to have come to naught, and I'm being blamed and reviled. I really learn a lot from that. Because I, I'm willing to use that, you know, and then that, because I don't, you know, this is what I most dread, personally, is criticism and failure uh, as a person. So when, when, that, when, when that sense of failure arises and I'm being criticized and blamed, this brings up strong emotion. And then I see that as a challenge, you know, as an opportunity for awareness. So in this practice of Sound of Silence, I can receive my anguish, despair, and anger. I can allow it to manifest and be what it is and let it go. And of course, all conditions that arise cease. So everything, everything, the world ends, the, the conditions cease, and the result of that is peacefulness, happiness, that isn't dependent on things going my way and everything being what I like. It's not the kind of happiness that, uh, that you have when, when you, uh, people praise you and, and obey you and do what you like. Because that kind of happiness is short-lived. It doesn't, you know, can't depend on it. So this you find in your, in within, you know, when they say, it's, it's, you know, the stillness within, the still, that unshakable, what they call a uh, agupa jeto vimuti, unshakable deliverance of the heart. This is the whole purpose of the holy life. This is what we're here for, to recognize, realize this uh, akupa jeda vimuti, the unshakable deliverance of the heart. So that unshakableness is through sati sampatanya. Not through thinking, Thinking makes you shake. The more you think, the more you'll worry. And so if you're just caught in the, in the wandering mind, in the thinking mind, then you're shaking all the time. <clears throat> Doubting, uncertain, uh, worried, anxious about this and that, about the future. But as you uh, no longer abide in that shakingness and that thinking and, and the and identity with the five khandhas, then you find your strength in the awareness, because that awareness is unshakable. Once you cultivate it, it, it is always the, the refuge that is available at any time, whatever's happening, in whatever state you find yourself in. In, in terms of like great despair, several times in the monastic life, I'm feeling great despair with with myself in the and monastic life, where you feel a sense of being disillusioned and uh, disappointed, despairing, and then with that, by recognizing that and trusting in the awareness of it. But you have to determine, I, you know, determine to, to develop this, to cultivate this in daily life. So in, in this, is, this is what, so that's why I see these, these as opportunities or challenges for cultivation. So the, the um, misfortunes of life 
present opportunities for us to cultivate. As well as ordinary life, sometimes just the humdrum life, everyday life can really be boring and we can get very perfunctory and, and, and just heedless because of the ordinariness of our lives. So it takes this determination to really observe this just mechanical living, habitual living that we do. We can easily just get caught in just following the momentum of habit. And then the successes, the peak moments also, rather than than just indulging in the pleasure of being the winner or or that being aware of that. So one isn't living one's life for peak moments. And one when one is experiencing peak moments, one is is not trying to hold on to them anymore. So they they are what they are and they cease and we can appreciate the peak moment without attaching to it, without demanding that we hold on to it or recreate it. So that's enough for this evening for reflection. We'll do the sharing of blessings in Pali. Stretch our abilities. Page 27. 26. Andamayanguti sanati tanakatayo banamase. Imina punya kame na ubajaya kudunara ajariyo bakara jamada bita chayata kasuriyo chandimaraja kunawanda nara bija brahmamara Jainna Jaloka Bala Jandevataya Momita Manutsa Jamajata Veriga Bijasabesata Sukhi Honda Bunyani Bagadani Mesukanjani Vidandenduki Bangapeta Womadangi Mina Bunyagamena Himina Udisena Jaki Bahang Surabe
Sambuddho Bhagava Bhurdhang Bhagavandhang Abhivadeni Bhagavatadamo Dhammang Namasami Bhagavato Savaka Sango Sangang Namam